Hello everyone and welcome back to A Pint With Peter. Uh, somewhat, oh god. A somewhat comedy <laughs> It is. It's we bridged it into generation It has been a while guys, you can forgive me. But anyway, Dad, uh, you were going to call this episode a casualty in... Oh, God, I've forgotten that. Now. Oh, the dangerous age. I am not with it tonight. Oh, right, so, Chris, you're now taking over the podcast. And well, because you've got to do an outro. It's supposed to be me who's senile. <laughs> Christ. Yeah, I've given it an alternative title. Mothers, lovers, trips along the way. Okay. So... What I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to run through some of the great bands I saw from that era. I'm going to try and give you a little bit of an insight into what was going on culturally. So sit back and hopefully enjoy. Um, close your eyes. I'll, I'll take you back to my hypnotherapy days. Right, imagine, imagine it is, let's say, 1970. It's, uh, you've, you've suddenly been in Doctor Who's time machine and you're in that wonderful time in the UK, that brief period between the Beatles splitting up and what, maybe five, six years later, punk happening. Why I think it was, if you're into pop culture, a really interesting time. I think there was something new emerging. I think there was still a kind of purity to a lot of the music and, and still a residual purity to um, to the cause, if you want. There was a great, for example, I'll have to ask you guys about it, because some things don't change over time. There's a real distaste to selling out. So you, you had allegiance to certain bands and then suddenly the band you liked either said something or more importantly put out some music where they were trying to change their style to, oh, to yeah. attract a wider audience. The one that jumps to me from our time is uh, Green Day. Oh, and also Blink-182, I'd say, but I feel like Blink got away with it more, you know, around the rise of the emo. So it was suddenly not particularly playing the music you really yeah, enjoy. Yeah, like it's still very similar, but it seemed more catered towards an emo crowd, yeah, and of course, yeah. like especially Green Day had the very yeah. punk roots. If you look at the history of bands, I mean, obviously, even back to the era you know, I hope to talk about tonight, you were uh, constantly, uh, particularly by an emerging uh, layer of managers, you were constantly being required really to change your image for the market. And possibly if you were only appealing to, you know, the hippie crowd, you know, the alternative crowd, if you want, later became the indie crowd, then maybe you needed to widen your appeal. You know, the bottom line is, um, you know, musicians are, you know, they're professional musicians, you know, you just want to further your... Uh, your career, which is quite understandable. But of course, ar around that time, as you know from comments I've made before, it was seen as uncool to be overtly materialistic or capitalistic, mm. you know, which, which frankly, it was a joke, uh, you know, an absolute joke. So th there we are, where I'm in the warm, I've paid my seven and six, or if it was a really big band, I paid my 12 and 6, and uh, I've, I've climbed the metal staircase. I'm in Mother. I'm amongst my friends. I'm in the warm, tomb-like gloom. 
a big difference then trying to create a bit of atmosphere here is the, the whole place would be wreathed in ciggy smoke mm. yeah we were discussing this before you, you came you, did, you didn't even notice it to be quite frank because everywhere you went you know, pubs uh, cafes restaurants people smoked you know our early games were full smoke is that right? yeah yeah and you, you'd come home absolutely reeking of it I mean I was saying before I quite miss the smell I kind of you know, miss the go, smell go, I was saying when we went to Vienna, we went into a cafe and it was like smoking or non-smoking. Of course, we went non-smoking. We were just walking through the smoking section. I was like, oh, it just takes me back there. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I, I haven't smoked, um, oh my goodness, probably for certainly 30 years. And uh, on a crisp autumn day like today, when the sun's shining, when I'm taking the dog out for a walk, there might be somebody... Um, 100 yards in front of me with their dog in the open air and you suddenly get a whiff of a cigarette and mm. it, it's quite attractive as you say it's strange isn't sure, I've it i said it for mine's always when i'm drinking yeah i smell i'm just like oh what am i in a cigarette now <laughs> i mean what one big difference because you know people like yourselves who weren't alive during that time you possibly if you've read certain things have this idea of uh you know, pot-smoking hippies, as it were. But my recollection, unlike nowadays, to be quite honest with you, of going to mothers was it would be quite rare, it would be quite unusual if you if you could smell dope being smoked. But you say you smell it more now in public. Oh, uh, no question. Because we'll even be waiting for a met and someone I, will be yeah, happy. I think yeah. you can just be walking down the street yeah. and just smell it i think i think smoking dope has become normalized i mean you look for example if you take the archetypal gathering of if, if you want the white middle classes at glastonbury you know soft drugs is de rigueur it's what you do there's even hard drugs there and so on and so i think it's more common for the upper class to do the hard drugs now that's that's yeah. quite an interesting one in itself it's certainly um you know if Obviously, anything I say about drugs is stuff I've just, you know, inferred from people I've spoken to. Didn't really involve me. He lied. Um, it was the big boys, remember? Yeah, the big boys. Yeah, big boys you know, always, always blame it on the big boys, or or it was a, a chap I didn't know from Wolverhampton, yeah, or Birmingham, or whatever. But um, I mean, to be fair, I was telling the guys before I did get offered coke the other day in in the toilet, so maybe it is. Yeah, well, that that's big that, boys. That's that's, big that's boys. right. I mean, just to again give you an insight. I mean, the great majority of people who enjoyed taking drugs of any description it was basically hash it was hash acid around this time and of course you always had a residual background of uh, uppers and downers and various pills what you've got to remember the police around that time they were obviously aware of their becoming from their perspective uh, a coming problem with drugs but um, if you if you were caught, if you it used to be called getting busted, it's probably called getting busted yeah, now, isn't now. it? If you were busted, the the fines actually for having uh, a joint, you know, which probably back then would have been called a reefer, would you believe, were quite draconian. And I, I remember this again. I think is an insight possibly into uh, how innocent people were. My, my first um, exposure 
to smoking dope again yes it was an older boy and uh, we all there were I think at least four of us and we, we all followed this older boy into the park yeah and we, we watched with uh, absolute fascination it was so cool if you want as he took his pack of Rizzler and uh, he built up what what you would call the five skin. You know, if you mm. if you watch with nail, he had his. Uh, see, the thing about drug taking is that there's a lot of kind of chic, and uh, you have your accoutrements and so on and so forth. So I remember he had this little piece of black resin inside um, a Victorian silver snuff box, and he he built this joint. Uh, and don't forget that that would have been five others. And uh, we I, we were really tentative, although we all smoked ciggies. You know, I remember, I think we all had maybe one puff on this joint. And then suddenly, I'm not, I'm not a kid, I'm not making this up. The bushes parted and this guy in plain clothes jumped out. And he said, right, lad, stop what you're doing. That's it, you're under arrest. And it shows how innocent we were. Uh, instead of probably what you do now, well, if, you, if it happened now, the guy would probably be taken on physically, wouldn't yeah. he? It was kind of, yes, officer. And we, we all dutifully got in like a line, like a crocodile, and walked with him. I, I would probably be, what, 16, something like that. We walked with him. He took us to the local cop shop, and we were fingerprinted, da-da-da, and I, we all spent, as I recall, the morning inside a cell wow. as, as a precautionary measure. I think it was to teach you a lesson, and... Uh, Obviously, we're just let off with a verbal warning. I mean, you know, my parents, they're really lax anyway, so I probably wouldn't have spoken about it anyway. But, um, and the guy who had his, uh, you know, silver box and the who'd made the joint, I, I think, I think he was eventually fine 30 quid, which yeah, would have back, even, then. back then that would have been a, as you know from previous conversations, uh, you know, a, a monthly. Yeah, you know, thirty quid. It was a lot of money. I remember some of my friends getting busted for about when we were eighteen on the street, and they just had it taken off them. Why? That's the difference. Yeah, I mean, you you know how I feel. I, I feel that in a way, it's a bit like a poacher and gamekeeper thing, isn't it? It's. Um, I think the authorities were faced with a situation a that they didn't understand b that they obviously saw as being uh, you know potentially very destabilizing which it was and has been but c i don't think even then they had the resources or the know-how to unfortunately do much about it and i think possibly what you might have been able to have seen is uh, i mean a much more draconian approach so as I say, you know, we, we spent that morning in the cells and it didn't have any impact on us whatsoever. In fact, it was a bit like these yobbos nowadays who get a tag. You know, it's yeah. seen as a kind of mark uh, mark of approval. And that's that really, particularly in a small town, uh, unquestionably, it's not something to be proud of, would be a draw. You know, if you were seen as being a bit edgy mm. or a bit out there, as a little bit of you know an interesting misfit it made you into somebody who people would quite like to know and that's the lure of it isn't it mm. you know I, I listen to an awful lot of crap particularly on the radio about you know particularly girls nowadays who 
like you know you've guessed it a bad boy yeah <laughs> like that hasn't changed now. it's a bad boy thing i, I mean I've, I've i've i probably did keep a diary around the time but I, I certainly don't have it now but interestingly guys did not have tattoos tattoos i would think where it's a cliche exclusively for individuals who'd been in the armed services particularly the navy and for individuals who'd been in Nick, that was it. There was no tradition then of, of tattoo. Early doors, as you know, I, I had an earring, and that would have been very unusual, and it, and it would draw quite a lot of flack as well, because you were considered to be um, obviously effeminate. You know, earrings were, were you know, an item that women would wear. It wasn't, it wasn't a guy thing. Me being me, my my earring was a. Uh, it wasn't just a, a loop. It was an antique Victorian gold anchor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So in in my prime, I would have had shoulder length hair. I would have possibly been smoking my gitan, you know, French mm-hmm. ciggy, and I've still got the hole in my ear now. You you thought of yourself as being pretty cool, but of course in reality you were probably, as you know, a dickhead. But you know, there you go. I think we look back to us as teenagers and be like, oh Jesus, yeah. what were we thinking? Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, me with my massive fringe that covered half my face. So in a way, it's a rite of passage. Yeah, guess, you, isn't you it? go so. through that phase, don't you? Yeah. Where you need to tick those boxes. Obviously, you're still finding yourself. Yeah, you can excuse a lot, can't you? I mean, one thing I never indulged in, but it was true. If you look at um, particularly a, a child's history book that covers this period, you'll see people sitting around in parks cross-legged and they will have face paintings. You did see the, the occasional face painting, right? That's not something you guys remember. No. Face painting. And... Uh, you know, picture this. I mean, denim was very popular. And uh, one of the habits in relation to uh, denim was bleaching it. Did you guys ever bleach denim? I feel yeah. like we, we just pre, pre-bought it. Yeah. Oh, you brought it pre-bleached? Yeah. Yeah, because I was really pissed off. Because d- denim's quite expensive. You know, Levi's really, are yeah. quite expensive. And I, I think I use battery acid, funnily enough. <laughs> I used battery acid in, in, in a bath, I seem to remember, diluted, and, and, it, and it wrecked the bloody jeans, you know what I mean? <laughs> they, they fell apart. So, you know, you'd have your Levi's, uh, and if you, if you weren't wearing Levi's, you can measure youth cultures by your style of tri- trousers. So we would have worn loon pants. You know what loon pants are? Oh, I, I do, they, I do. They're flares. They're, yeah, they're flares. basically flares. I was going to say flares. Yeah, but the flares weren't uh, enormous. You know, I think later, say during the Madchester era, when baggy trousers and flares came back, they, those were flares kind of deluxe. They, they were exaggerated. Somebody tells me, I, I don't know who it was, could have been uh, Colleen from Tenerife, or it could have been my sister. No, I think it was my sister. Uh, my loon pants, apparently, were purple. Mm. Purple. And I cut out, uh, out of felt, a little red heart. So, so I had... Uh, interestingly, the, the other feature of these trousers, because I know you guys, particularly you, Russell, were keen on showing your arse crack. I do you? love showing my arse crack. The, the, the trousers were called hipsters. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now called well hipsters for an obvious reason. The the belt, etc., would be resting here on on your hips, mm. and uh, if you were a, a girl, you'd possibly be showing your belly button. And uh, p people didn't have piercings either. You know, no, nobody had a you know um, a piercing in on their nipple or uh, in the uh, you know the belly button. You see, one one thing. I, I like to talk about it's a great picture of us. It's like, oh my god, yeah, that's that's about as fairly they're very neat. Because the period I'm talking about, as I've, as I've just said, is 70 to 76. I can't cover it all tonight, but I'll do a bit of it. But um, flowery shirts started off being very hard to get, and then suddenly it shows how quickly uh, commercial outfits latch on to any trend i made I, I remember making a deliberate journey into birmingham to c and a the big store you maybe remember it oh, as kids I, so i got my flowered shirt from c and a <laughs> so they cottoned onto it uh, early doors but my my favorite shirts were called granddad shirts are you familiar with the granddad yeah. shirt well the granddad shirt um People, well, literally, people like my grandfather, you'd buy the shirt without a collar, Sorry, and then you'd buy the collar as a separate item. Sometimes these collars were made of a kind of plastic stuff. I, I don't remember that. And, and But what people used to wear were vests that didn't have a collar. And, of course, you had the collarless shirts. And uh, people like me would wear uh, not a cravat, but like a scarf. A little scarf so imagine it guys you know you've got your long hair you've got your earring you've, you've got your kind of frenchy type scarf you've got your granddad vest and uh, if you could afford it sometimes they were fake you, you might have uh, a massive belt it was like a bloody cargo hook you know there's great big cargo hooks for years for pulling stuff off ships yeah. you know with a massive buckle on it and sometimes that would be snakeskin. It'd probably fake, I don't know. And you could, you could even get snakeskin shoes. Your, your, your average guy, I guess, maybe would have uh, footwear, would have had bumpers, which were baseball boots, or even pumps. Your footwear, I remember as a, probably as a 13, 14 year old, we used to be able to buy winkle pickers, you know, the really pointed yeah. toes. Because what what you were buying was fairly cheap and nasty. It must have been something people in the Middle Ages must have experienced. The toes turned up, so you had to stuff them with tissue paper. Then you had Cuban heels, and you had the boots, Chelsea boots with the little gusset. So the footwear was pretty good, actually, if, if you could afford it. As you know, I, I went to uh, Nepal in, in the early 70s and if you go back to podcast five i i had a pair of handmade leather boots oh, you remember me yeah, telling yeah. you about that yeah. the cowboy boots yeah. that, that was the other uh item of clothing and uh because you know we'd been to the east john and i had the the kind of high watermark of hippie fashion we, we had genuine afghan coats you know the white yeah. in, in, i met a girl the other day a young girl a few weeks ago and she had like a copy of an Afghan coat, and uh, I was quite, I was quite heartened really, because most people, when you're talking about this sort of stuff, they think, oh God, I wish this old boring bastard would just 
fuck off, you know, I'm not interested. But she was genuinely interested in the in the origins of this coat and what it was like buying one because they stank. Yeah, you know, they they weren't processed no. properly. But it's it's like if I don't know if you ever watched any what is now old footage of the punk scene when the punk scene first emerged. For every hippie who might have been attired vaguely in the way in which I've described to you. Many, many other kids would just be wearing quite normal trousers and a normal shirt and, you know, maybe they'd be wearing an ex-army greatcoat or an ex-army safari jacket. Barney, I remember his uh, chosen piece of clothing, was uh, he, he was quite trendy. He, he had a striped blazer. Mm, so when you when you read about all this era on uh, you know Wikipedia or whatever, it mentions these bloody striped blazers, but I don't remember many striped blazers. I think it was a London thing. Barney actually stole his. I remember where he stole it from. It, it was uh, we used to go to this youth club, and this youth club had like a little theatre next door and, and you know he was very curious and kind of broke in basically and went to the box of stuff they use for the productions so that's where he he got his jacket from so have you have you got the picture here oh the other smell you would get which i think is really unusual now girls also guys used to wear a really powerful perfume called patchouli never heard of it patchouli oil it's a, it's a really powerful smell. I'll see if I can get some for you, because I'm, I'm sure it, it is available. You know how people of my age laugh and joke, maybe your father has, about the aftershaves that people wore back in these mm. days? You know, you had Brut and Old Spice. I mean, take it from me, there was no subtlety. No, you know, if, if somebody was wearing Brut, Old Spice or Patchouli, I'm not kidding. They had like a, a vapor trail behind them. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? If 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 you if you were to come in tonight wearing patchouli, you could go out and out of that front door, and you could still smell it, and it, it would reside for quite a long time. So there you are. You're in the club. You walk down the road with all these shops that have gone now. You know, Wool. You remember Woolworths? Yeah. Woolworths and Burtons and. Um, if you go on the, but there's not many of them and they're not particularly interesting. If you go on the recollections of mothers, and I remember this guy, they were wonderful because I used to eat hot dogs back in those days. And there's a gentleman called Ted and it was Ted's hot dogs. <laughs> you know the kind of gig you see outside football matches yeah. even now. On the few occasions where I was lucky enough to have a girlfriend, I remember, I remember a couple of times, this is a blast from the past, the go-to establishment for fast food was called Golden Egg. Would you believe anybody listens to this who's my age? All over the country, these Golden Egg places sprang up, which basically sold omelettes. Huh. Interesting. It's fast, yeah. fast food omelettes. Yeah. I was just saying to Alex the other day, we're missing a Golden omelette egg. Yeah. specialities place. Yeah, no one, do, no one really does them as like a specialty. The girls enjoyed an omelette, of course. I mean, the girls... Uh, Is that a euphemism? No, 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 no. The, the girls uh, had very much a peasant look. So the girls would, would have had long skirts 
yeah, the miniskirts came a little bit before, and the, and the whole thing about being a hippie girl was, um, how can I put it? You didn't flaunt your sex. You know, you, you, you probably wore clothing that made you, again, look somewhat ethnic. Was, was this... Are you with me? So you'd have yeah. long skirts. You maybe would have had... The scarves were very, very popular. And you maybe would have had some kind of embroidered... Or if it came from the Far East, uh, a little waistcoat that would have had little mirrors in it. Have you ever seen yeah, that? Yeah, we've seen them. Be- because you, you've worked, both worked at Athletics Palace, it's the kind of thing you would have... It, if you could go back to Athletics in the 70s, the place would have been stuffed full. I feel like you, of, could, I think it's I feel like you, you could probably still find one now if you look. Really? Yeah. Sure well, when you're talking about floral shirts and stuff, I was like, God, it's just, it's like Affleck's stock has never changed. Really? Yeah. I was also going to say, was the stereo, near like the hairy woman, was, was that a hippie thing or is that just... Oh, well, I mean, because you're my son and it's a little bit embarrassing. I mean, when I'm talking about drugs, if I ever get round to it, I mean, in, you know, more salacious listeners might want to know what's it like having sexual intercourse on these drugs but I, I'm not going to go there lads I'm sorry but uh, amazing but but but, 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 but again using uh, very crude uh, nomenclature yes girls and women back in those days had what would have been called hairy muffs mm-hmm. yeah so the history books were true correct yeah yeah are you talking you know quite so voluminous <laughs> shall we say yeah, <laughs> and uh, even armpits. It's quite natural, isn't it? Uh, oh yeah. I mean, the you know girls, um, they don't start developing hairy legs really until a little bit later, do they? But no, no, it didn't bother anybody. You know, you didn't see it as being aesthetically un- unpleasant or anything. I mean, what I'd like to talk about really, and I, I'm very interested in your opinion, is you know why, how would music of, of the type I was listening to and you guys listen to, why is it so meaningful? I mean, I, I'd, I'd nail my colours to the, to the mast, um, particularly back then. You know, most music I would have been interested in, my core interests would have been you know, blues and, and rock. You know, that kind of... Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been called heavy because I've never really liked heavy music. But it would have had... Shades of heavy. Do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? And for me, the bands I saw that really excited me, they exuded power, they exuded energy. And on a good night, the excitement of watching them perform live was, in, was incredible. And you had that great anticipation. Well, you know what it's like, you're standing there and the, back then the lights would have been fairly... <laughs> fairly basic you know but that that anticipation yeah they're going to be coming on stage uh, it, it's, it's a great feeling isn't oh, it oh yeah i think that thinking about it then you know the gigs we would go to where the lights would go dim yeah. the music would start to play you could see the last of the sound guys running yeah. around and then like the first person would appear normally the drummer yeah and everyone's like Way! and then of course the vocalist comes on and kicks out always with a belter yeah well exactly yeah i mean for me i'd only give it a small r but you were looking at its best at a 
quasi-religious experience. I think you can describe it as religious is because it's one of a few times in your life where A, you don't have to be there. You know, it's not like going to school or going to college or, you know, going to work. It's something you've chosen to do. If it's a band that you really like, you have a kind of frisson of excitement around them and you feel an attachment to them and uh, a devotion, if you want. And you, and you have a really strong communal sense, I think. And if you speak to musicians, I think, I think what is really beautiful is when the band work together as a unit you know when they feed up the audience and, and it's, a, it's a it's a symbiotic uh, synergetic experience it's a great thing and that's why there are clear links between i guess you know, without sounding like a moron, even now, in my very late 60s, uh, you know, my twin passions are still music and football, you know. And, and the feeling you have, again, on a good day, watching a team you, you like and they're playing attractive football and it's all going right. It's a similar thing. And of course, I've, I've got a whole section for a future podcast on the links between football chants that are based on pop songs. <laughs> That's an interesting one. My three bands I've chosen, number one would be The Who. Are you familiar with The Who? Yeah. Yeah? I mean, The the Who, I would have seen them very, very early doors. And when they first came onto the scene, they were basically a mod band, funnily enough. They were mod. It's going back to what we were talking about, you know, 20 minutes ago. They were persuaded by the management to change their uh, change their image. But interested asking you, they had some really brilliant singles. They came to the fore with. Uh, did you, so tell me, do you know any of these? You, you must know my generation. Yeah. Russell, do you know yeah, my generation? Yeah, that's what I know. Do you know Substitute? Yeah. Do do do. Great riffs. They had they had really yeah. great riffs. Uh, I can see for miles. My generation yeah, substitute. Yeah. I can't explain. That's that's another Which one. How's that go? Um, I'm not I'm not even going to go there because my voice. I'm getting a bit hoarse. <laughs> but check it out later. So they they began as purveyors of mod. But what's interesting about them is, like a lot of those early bands that were successful, they had the classic liner, obviously vocalist, rhythm section, drums and bass, and obviously an outstanding lead guitarist. What really interests me, or interested me at the time, when they were emergent, they, particularly the guitarist, um, do you know who the guitarist was? Pete Townsend. And he came from an art background and the idea behind their act was uh, because they were anti-capitalist and anti-consumerist if you want but they were really into it sounds really sooty they were really into what's called auto-destructive art auto-destructive art it was a very much a 60s idea and you can check it out later the the kind of arch exponent of it was a guy called Metzger, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R. And his, his idea was to create an artwork that would not be sold. It would be shown, it would be displayed, it would be exhibited, and then it would be destroyed. Yeah. 
So his early artwork, I think I've got this right, it was made on, um, what, would you, what would you describe it? Like a, a plasticky type substance. So he'd put the designs and everything on these massive sheets of, like perspex, I suppose, something like that. And then he'd pour acid onto it, and the acid would slowly drip down and destroy the piece of work. So Pete Townsend, in particular, is really interested. Around the same time, so I know you like a bit of art, Andy Warhol uh, was into the same ideas. And if you check out early Andy Warhol painting, he's got a whole series called The Car Crash Paintings, which are designs around multiple images of, of car crashes, would you believe? And then a little bit later following the kind of auto-destructive vibe. You had uh, individuals like Yoko Ono, and she, one of her, I guess, most, well, I wouldn't call it celebrated, because I think she's a bit of a crank, to be honest. She would dress in quite an elaborate costume, and the, and the artwork would be people coming through the gallery with a pair of scissors, and during the day, cutting off pieces of the clothing to leave her naked. Are, are you with me? I'm, I'm just thinking we need to plan out a pint with Peter artwork. It, 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 uh... is, is it frightening you, the, a vision of Yoko Ono sure, naked? It's just... It's crap, I know. It? I always remember when we went to the Guggenheim oh, and oh someone God. had an installation that was recording melting ice. It's a, it's a long-standing tradition because... When was it? Was it last year? Did you see the Banksy piece? I see the Banksy one that yeah. sold and then automatically went into a shadow. That's yeah. right. That's I, right. I've discovered something recently. Don't ask me what it's about because I couldn't understand it. It's called the Yellowism Movement. It's two Russian guys or Ukrainians fought it up and it's something about defacing the, this type of artwork. Yeah, like if someone's just painted a canvas one solid colour, they might go in and I'm sure someone wrote, this could be art on (laughs) one. Yeah, yeah, because if if you know your art history, I mean, what you had during the late 20th century, you you obviously would have had pop art. You you had psychedelic art, I suppose you could call it that. But you also, as I've just alluded, you had performance art. Because what I've just described to you, some of it is performance art. And of course, you you had the idea of the happening Mm -hmm. or the event. Yeah, so it's conceptual art. Well, everyone, we're going to leave it there for now. We're just clearly chatting about our love for modern art. My, my, we are a cultured podcast, aren't we? Now, let's hope this outro goes better than the, the intro. I clearly am out of practice a bit. You know, I could have edited that out, but it just felt fun to leave it in, didn't it? As always with these podcasts, we want you to join in with the conversation. And I think with these music episodes, we're really touching upon subjects that you can really get involved with yourself. Tell us about your gig experiences. Do you get excited when you just know the band's going to come on? Have you ever been busted carrying weed? Don't worry, we are not affiliated with uh, the police in any way. And do you wince when you look back at teenage pictures of yourself? I know I do, and I'm not going to share that on Twitter. As always, you can join in with the conversation by going to Twitter and use the handle at a pint with Peter. I promise I'm going to get more vocal on there again. Social media can just be so draining at times. But if, like me, you're sick of social media, then you can always use our email using the address 
apintwithpeter at gmail.com. And finally, a review goes a long way for an up-and-coming podcast. You know, if you could leave us a review on Apple iTunes, that would be amazing because it just helps the podcast get noticed. And also, we do have a link where you can buy us a coffee just to support that podcast a little bit. Well, everyone, thanks for listening and on to the next one.